Well, last Saturday night, I went to the uh, cinema. It's a fairly rare event. But I went to see the uh, new film, Mr. Turner. Has anyone seen it? One or two, yeah, yeah, good. Um, it's about the life of the English landscape artist, J.M.W. Turner. And within what is a very intimate portrayal of his life, one of the things that really stood out for me was a small detail. It was that he seemed to be up and out of the house very early in the morning. I shouldn't really be surprised. I mean, Turner is known for his interpretation of light on landscape. And seeing light as it emerges from darkness provided him with much to wonder at. And I was reading up about him a bit later and was intrigued that he painted in 1839 um, a piece of work on the Campo Vaccino in Rome. And he painted that uh, work of art entirely from memory of a visit to Rome ten years previously. And I was intrigued because I wondered what made a man rise at five o'clock to see the sun emerge and then on a completely different occasion paint light and landscape entirely from an old memory. And the author of the biography that I was reading pointed out, which I thought was quite insightful, that painting away from a subject can heighten your ways of seeing and make you reflect more profoundly on what interested you about that scene originally. I wonder if there's a place from your past that feels particularly vivid to you, almost as if you could paint it from memory. Well, these are thoughts to which I'll return at the end of my talk, because what we're going to focus on today is all about remembering, well, actually, also about forgetting, and particularly about the highly selective memory of the Israelites that's revealed in the episode from which we've just heard an extract about their worshipping of the golden calf. And yet, as we'll explore their memory lapses, forgetting about God in particular, which are really failures not in memory but in desire, are mirrored in our own lapses. So, the outline of the talk. We'll begin by looking again at that episode, Israel's forgetting of God and the ramifications of that, how that cycle is repeated through history, until Jesus breaks it. That's the second section. And then finally, how you and I might go about remembering God. Well, one of my favourite Christian book titles is... It's by Bill Hybels, and the title is, Who Are You When No One's Looking? Who Are You When No One's Looking? I read the book once, and it remains on my bookshelf now as a poignant memory and a piercing question to ask from the spine of that book. And that very question might have been very helpful for Israel. Who are you when no one's looking? Why would it have been helpful to Israel? Well, let's just remind ourselves of the background here. So far in our Exodus narrative, God has been very much alongside his people 
acting through Moses and, yes, active in every way. Rescuing them from Egypt, providing sustenance in manna and quail, giving commandments for right living, setting out mutual promises with his people, and bringing angels to smooth their paths. And the people responded at that time, everything the Lord says, we will do. Well, who are they when no one's looking? Well, in chapter 24, Moses accepts God's invitation to abide with him on Mount Sinai and to receive the law in full, a detailed exposition of the conditions for right worship. And that is a long section that takes us pretty much to the end of chapter 31. And in the meantime, the people of Israel are at the foot of the mountain and they think no one's looking. And what do they do in that state? They forget God. They forget God, they forget the commandments they've just received, the covenant that they've just made. It's all out of sight, out of mind. They forget Moses too. And the good news story, because it has been a good news story so far in Exodus, to a large extent, receives its first major jolt in the form of sin. So let's turn to examining that sin a little as I begin the first section of forgetting God. Well, the sin that they commit contravenes the first three commandments concerning their relationship with God. This was no small misdeed. Those first three commandments, if you remember, they're the ones about having no other God, about not making idols or misusing God's name. And they contravene all of those because they gather up the golden earrings of all the people and a golden calf is fashioned from the products of a physical and spiritual meltdown. That calf that emerges from the furnace is is attributed with the characteristics of God. They make sacrifices to it. They bow down to it. They praise it for bringing them out of Egypt. And they trust it to smooth their path. They pretend it's God. And I find interesting too, the first few words of the whole passage on page 90. They said, reads, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, A catastrophic sin is effectively born out of impatience. Isn't that sometimes how we lose our way? Big sins start with little triggers. Anger, impatience, boredom. Things that grow and take us down bad paths and encourage us to make poor choices. Well, returning to the Israelites, we won't go into all the detail of what follows, but the pattern and the overview I set out in the sermon handouts here is particularly important, and I'll just uh, say so shortly, say why shortly. Well, you see, it's important to notice that far from their sin uh, being hidden from God, the imagination that no one's looking, God, in fact, does see their sin and has an anger at what they're doing that burns against them, we're told, to the point of considering their destruction, whilst also still yearning for them to become a great nation. 
And then second, next, Moses comes into God's righteous wrath at what they've done and sticks up for Israel. From memory, he paints a picture of all that God has done in their people's rescue. His loyalty being a further rebuff to the evil Egyptians and his promise that he's made to provide land and to prosper this nation. Moses serves as their advocate. And the third part of the overview is that after Moses has climbed down from the mountain and expressed his own anger about what's happened and righted the wrong, he stands at the entrance to the camp and says in verse 26, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. In all this mess of revelry, people worshipping false gods, he says, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Who's still with me? Who's still with God's program? Who's still ready to follow the path? And the only ones that do are the Levites, one of the tribes of Israel. And their descendants retain, even now, a special place of honor in the practices of Orthodox Judaism. So step back for a moment. Can you see the pattern here? Human sin, God's anger, righteous advocacy, and a response to God's call. In fact, more than a pattern, it's almost like a cycle. A cycle, in fact, that repeats itself through Old Testament history and repeats itself in some ways to the present day. Yet in those Old Testament times, it was dealt with through the system of sacrifice. And I'm just going to say very quickly a word about the sacrifice system that operated at that time and after Moses. A sacrifice, usually of animals, was a kind of coping mechanism, a way that the broken relationship between humankind and God could be reconciled and kept alive, a way of people recognizing their sin and unworthiness before a holy God and sacrificing because it was believed to be pleasing to him and costly for the individual. And yet, whilst that cycle was maintained, the problem of sin persisted. And of course, sin is as old as time. And we may no longer, in the modern day, burn our golden earrings to create golden calves. But the sins of idolatry, false gods, and the rejection of God are just as present now. And we talked about those during the series on Exodus in the Ten Commandments. But what has changed since those Old Testament times and the system of sacrifice is the way that our sin has been dealt with by God and the impact on you and I. Because in Jesus Christ, that cycle that I described has been changed forever. So my second section, as I look to how Jesus has changed the rules here, I think the clearest way of seeing that is through Scripture. And I could have chosen a number of different passages, but I would like you to consider the first letter of John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. It's on page 1225 if you want to have a look at it. But I'll read it out to you because I think it's informative in this respect. John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have the one who speaks to the Father in our defense, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That explains a little of what Jesus has done for us. And it tells us about that in four ways, I think. You see, when the law was defined as the criteria for obedience, i.e. stick to these laws and you'll be righteous before God, Jesus, the righteous one, showed us how to live in obedience to God. And he set standards of holiness that show us how to live. Yet, we continue to struggle with sin in our lives. But we have his example to follow. And where we see God's anger in this passage, appeased through sacrifice, his love is now shown in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, with forgiveness as the reward won on the cross for the humble-hearted. And where you see Moses had been the advocate for Israel on Mount Sinai, Jesus Christ is, as the passage says, the eternal advocate for all who speaks to the Father in our defense. And we therefore can know that depending on him is the way to experience the fullness of the Father's love. And when in the past, compliance with the law was what mattered. Because of Jesus' saving work, what really matters is our wholehearted devotion to him. It's that to which we're now called. So if you see the whole sequence of events portrayed in the golden calf has been turned on its head, rather, by Jesus. A cycle of sin has become a search for holiness, yet sin remains. A God angry with sin is no longer to appease by us He's given us the gift of forgiveness through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The advocacy on Sinai is an eternal dependence on our advocate in heaven. And the question, whoever is for the Lord, come to me, is no longer answered only by Levites, but by all who can answer with a wholehearted, I am. So, If you like, that's the end of my second section, and that's a bit of theology. But I want to turn now to what this means for us. And if we've learned, if we can remember all that Israel forgot, how can we apply that in our lives? And I'm not going to give you a whole doctrine of Christian living, but under each of the points that I've mentioned and that are shown on the sermon outline. I want to provide you just with one idea to take away, reflect, and pray about. First, holiness and sin. Well, because of Jesus Christ, a cycle of sin has become a search from holiness. And later in 1 John, he writes, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So, we need to become and pray that we'll become, as we did in that song just just now, as much like Jesus as we can be. Now, that is an incredibly tall order for all of us. And if you're anything like me, you probably feel a million miles away from being as Jesus was. That means you're conscious of your own sin. And that's a good thing. 
because that draws you towards Jesus and the need for forgiveness. Far better sign than feeling as though you're already there. And a starting point for walking as Jesus did might be to begin to see things through Jesus' eyes. I was stunned in just tracing through Mark's gospel again this week. You know how Jesus sees things in a completely different way to all other people. We see fishermen. He sees fishers of men. We're part of an impatient crowd. Jesus sees the need for solitary prayer. We see an incurable leper in desperate need of healing. He sees an evangelist to be. We say, give us clarity on the law. And he gives revelation by stories. We see a stormy sea and are buffeted by it. And he sees the opportunity to build faith. Jesus sees just about everything differently to how it's seen by the world. He looks through the eyes of God, even at the cross where his victory is the public view of failure. And the Israelites, in their moment of God and Moses being out of sight, out of mind, erased the memory of God's goodness to them and instead asked, what's God ever done for us? Make us a new one. If they'd looked through the eyes of God, how different things would have been. I wonder if Jesus was to walk round Claygate, or we did with, with our, and, and attempted to look through Jesus' eyes, what we would see. I would suggest the picture that we would paint from memory of Him would be a very different one to that that a camera might show. And yet, despite Jesus' vision of holiness, I wonder whether we have moved on very much from the days of the golden calf. The beginning of remembering God is to remember our own sin and our need for him because of Jesus Christ, the image of holiness. We remember that we remain sinful. My second point in this final section is about forgiveness. Because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, we've been given the gift of forgiveness for that sin. I think that means that our relationship with God has been freed from the cycle of anger and appeasement because of that sacrifice and replaced with something far more real in a sense. Because we're assured of forgiveness, we don't need to pretend or hide And that's good because I think getting real about our faith and holiness means addressing things that aren't right in our lives but often feel beyond our control. Why when I know, for example, that I should forgive someone, do I still feel angry with them? Why do the desires that pull me away from God never quite go away? Why do I sometimes find prayer difficult? In the confidence of forgiveness, freely given, we can invite Jesus into the mess of our lives with its contradictions and different pulls and ask him and beg him to work with us. Because we can be pretty sure that what looks to us like a spoiled canvas will through his eyes 
appear something of potential and beauty. So our confession need never be routine. It never need be, as it has been at times for some, for all of us, the rather unpromising results of a week on the moral treadmill, but the springboard to a real and loving conversation that moves us towards Jesus. Because of Jesus Christ, we remember that we are forgiven. Thirdly, dependence. The people of Israel had the advocacy of Moses on Sinai, didn't they, to stick up for them. We have the one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We're gifted an eternal advocate in heaven on whom we can depend. A friend this week explained to me what that meant to him. He said at times he'd felt as though his own cycle of sin and need for forgiveness had driven him away from God that he had feelings of unworthiness or that he was continually tripping over in the quest for more godly living. And that created an awkwardness and a distance from God. And yet he had reached a crucial point in the realization that God was not drumming his fingers in impatience at his pathetic efforts, but reaching out to hold him in loving embrace. And that love was not here today and gone tomorrow, but something in which he could trust and depend. Because of Jesus Christ, we remember that we can depend on God's love. Finally, wholeheartedness. Only the Levites held their hands up for God. We can, incomplete though we are, messy though our lives may be, put our hands up for God, not as the finished article, but as ones wanting to be made more complete in him. I can't think of a better way that wholeheartedness is sometimes expressed than in that lovely hymn that's based on Psalm 42. As the deer pants for living water, so my soul pants for you, O God. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. Now, if at times the panting for living water feels more just like a dryness in the throat, or a soul panting for God feels like a small draw towards him, or a heart's desire becomes something that we postpone to the future. If that's if that sums up you where you're at today, I want to say to you that may not be always how you respond to God. I hope that you'll be drawn closer. You might not always be able to say, as I cannot always, you alone are my heart's desire. But I do pray that that's something that we can wish for ourselves that God will alone be our heart's desire. I want that for myself and I want that for you too. So because of Jesus Christ's amazing love, we remember that our response to him should be a wholehearted one. I just want to end now with a few questions which kind of bring back some of the ideas that I mentioned at the beginning of my talk. 
And just for this final section, I'd be grateful if you could just close your eyes and listen to the words and just deal in your imagination with all that arises. Has there ever been a place, a person, a moment in your walk with Jesus, whatever stage that's at, that's been so vivid that you could almost paint it from memory? How might the fact that our eyes cannot detect God heighten our ways of seeing him? How might that help us remember? If the light of God revealed in Jesus is most intense when we're least prepared, like Turner in the early morning, will we remember to rise and greet him? And finally, can we paint lives wholeheartedly in devotion to him from the memory of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Amen.